living generously is more than just writing a check to a nonprofit. It's how you think about how you give back in relationships with people close to you, how you give back to your family, how you orient your calendar around things that aren't completely selfish, but ways to build others up. And yeah, sometimes that looks like a tax deductible write-off for the gift to charity, but a lot of times it doesn't. week here on More Than Profit, we explore the stories of leaders, entrepreneurs, and investors who have made a difference in the world while building successful businesses. We sit down with each guest and dive into their personal journey, their struggles and triumphs, and the lessons they've learned along the way. On this episode, we sit down with Gabe Cooper, founder and CEO of Virtuous, a responsive fundraising platform helping charities increase generosity and do more good. He's also the founder of Brushfire Interactive and co-founder of ShotZoom Software, which was the highest rated golf app in its time before acquisition several years ago. Gabe has a true passion for creating market-defining software and helping charities reimagine generosity. After serving in a leadership role at a large nonprofit in the early 2000s, Gabe went on to help build a series of successful products in the nonprofit and for-profit sectors. In 2020, he also wrote and published the book, Responsive Fundraising, as a way to help nonprofits connect more personally with donors at scale. The really impressive part about Gabe is his thirst for the extreme and his humility as a leader, even despite his many past accomplishments. His honesty about failure and his ability to navigate from founder to CEO of a now larger company with 150 plus employees is beyond impressive. So few founders are able to navigate this transition and Gabe has done it with renewed clarity and energy to build the individuals and teams that make Virtuous a company to watch. Brian, a couple of years ago, you and I went downhill mountain biking and... That is correct. It was quite the experience. I was terrified. I mean, I've been mountain biking before, but they hand you all of this equipment to kind of suit up and you feel like you're a knight in shining armor. You're going down the hill. And one of our friends really biffed it. So yeah, I think biffed it is, is light. So right before this person got hurt, I was thinking, this is a blast. I could do this all the time. And I've not done it since that time. So our guest this morning is Gabe Cooper. And Gabe was with us in Colorado. And what I didn't realize is Gabe doesn't have good depth perception, like with his vision. So I'm riding a couple, I think I'm behind him or second behind him. And we went off this kind of tabletop thing. And I mean, he flew. And this is why Gabe Cooper will always be a hero in my mind. So he was in fetal position doing a, one of those noises. And the thing that was so great is we had a young guy with us that once he realized Gabe was okay, Gabe was, he was like, that was awesome. And I was like, oh my gosh, dude, I'm like, this guy's a father of children. I think he's dead. And I remember (laughs) in that the armor that he had, I remember the armor was broken. It was really, really bad. All that was bad, but we get down to the parking lot and this is why I love Gabe. So Gabe is clearly fractured or broken some ribs. He can't see out of his right or left eye. And then he has a two-hour drive to Denver to catch his flight. And that brother drove all the way, which I don't know what we were thinking with letting him drive. I mean, that's the thing. Nobody made Gabe do this. You know, no. it was just it oh, was something no. we were no. doing. And he was not going to be one of the guys that said, I'm not, I'm not up for this. And so even without his depth perception, he went down the mountain. You know, I remember another story with Gabe. He, at least I heard about this secondhand, but he was on some camping trip which was supposed to be... Oh, it was a father-son camping father, trip. Yeah, and he comes back with like frostbite. 
frostbite. Yeah. Well, and, and even with that, like he had like a near death experience. Like, yeah, because he got injured on the first 10 minutes of the trip, I think, but he powered through it. He was in Canada or somewhere weird like that. But the thing that's funny with it all is going, he didn't lose any digits, but he had some frostbite. We had a fishing trip that same week. And I thought, there's no way Gabe's going to go. And I just remember he's like, I'm still going. He still went. I mean, he still wobbled around, but yeah. So yeah, that's Gabe Cooper, our guest this yeah, morning. Yeah, all that to say, if there's something extreme, Gabe's going to do it and Gabe's going to do it all out, like full tilt. So Gabe, what is it about you when you do something, at least in my experience, it's to the extreme, extreme running, extreme biking, whatever. But like you really like pour yourself into it. Has that always been the case for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the funny part is that you guys know me, like I have no business doing any of it, right? Like I'm not very outdoorsy. I don't know how to survive well. I'm not a, a natural athlete. There's nothing about me that would say that I should do that. And so I should really just say no, like 90% of the time. And I say yes, and then end up fishing on a heart with monitor. my hand because my right hand is broken or on a heart monitor or in a yeah. hospital somewhere on yeah. trips. So my sweet wife has Put up with it for a long time but i don't know what it is in me i think i really like endurance like sticking with something well past when i should stick with it i think in some ways that's one of my superpowers Bryce, i think last time we were together i talked about like i'm not and joking even before the podcast like i'm not that interesting i'm a b plus in terms of smarts and a maybe a B minus in terms of being able to cast a vision and be articulate, but I will stick with something for a long freaking time. And so I think that's just become my superpower over time, as weird as that sounds. So I do think that's true because I'm even thinking of, again, another funny Gabe Cooper story is Gabe Cooper's going to do the rim to rim to rim, which is, if you don't know what that is, it's one of the most grueling things in Arizona where it's the Grand Canyon. You go, you go up and down, the whole canyon, then you go back up and down in the same day. And how many hours does that typically take? It took me 19 when I pulled it off. Well, but that was the second time because the yeah. first time he did the rim to rim and then was like hallucinating, <laughs> called his wife. So his wife's in Phoenix. He's at the rim of the Grand Canyon. He can't hold food down. I mean, just one of those things where, and this is embarrassing to me, but when I found out, I didn't know, I didn't think I found out from him that he didn't make it. I cried. Because I knew how important it was and how stupid he is that he would be back out there. And he did. You Then you did do it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Went back out again. Yeah. Which is an amazing quality. And honestly, so we haven't even talked about your professional life. When you say you're unimpressive, which I think is just, one, just a testament to your character. And we're going to get into kind of some of that. Because the thing that I've always been attracted to in you is your humility. And so we invested in, in one of your company, actually two of your companies, and I think by and large, one of the reasons was because of your unbelievable humility. Yes, you have underlying technical ability and competency and you've built successful businesses, but you've always been teachable. You're always approachable and you don't think you're the smartest person in the room, which I wish more, more founders had that type of quality. But professionally, if we actually dive into that, like you have, I mean, you, you are very impressive. Like you've built ShotZoom, which was one of the best apps ever as a golf app in the app and store. one of the first golf apps. And was one it one of the first? Of the first yeah. Yeah. Yep. Kind of parlayed that into your, you know, your next gig, Brushfire, which was basically built web-based solutions and, and app technologies for a whole suite of clients. And then now into Virtuous, which is 
in my opinion, the leading software CRM for nonprofits out there. And so I think that quality that we were kind of joking about is what in some ways has stymied you through, helped kind of get you through that because your unwillingness to give in, to cave to what some people might think is insurmountable. Because I know in some of our earlier conversations, even about virtuous, the giants out there of of Salesforce offer, how are you going to go up against Salesforce when they're offering free subscriptions to nonprofits? How are you going to go up against BlockBot and all these others? But you had a vision and you've kind of stuck with it. So kudos to you in that. I, I am curious, do you feel like that that intensity on kind of the extreme side is carried over into business or do you feel like there is a there is a separation, like that's an outlet for you or is that just kind of part of your nature, part of your design and how you approach life in total? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is endurance, but I think part of it is I have great parents and they're the kind of parents that just like made you believe that you could do anything. And so I've always grown up sort of thinking that I can do anything I want to do almost to a fault, like the rim to rim to rim thing. Like I had no business doing that. And I'm just like, yeah, sure. I could do that. Like most people don't, if they're not actually in shape to do it, they don't have that thought. Right. And it's the same with starting any of the companies I've started, it's entrepreneurship in general. I think you have to be just a little bit stupider, be emboldened in a way to do something that you really have no business doing. And it's been sort of exactly that way with Virtuous. And I do think growing up, it's a huge part of it. Like my folks were just, they never told me that I wasn't capable of something. So I've, I've always believed that I can do great things. And sometimes it's a massive failure, but I've never sort of doubted that I could accomplish something. And I think to your point about the humility side of it, I think in doing that, you realize really fast that you are pretty insufficient. Like once you get smacked in the face a couple of times and you've had some failures, you realize that I have a lot of self-belief, but I'm actually not smart enough to pull off any of this stuff. But for me, that attitude, I think in some ways, what's made me successful in some of these areas is that other really smart people are willing to work with me, right? So at like ShotZoom, my two co-founders were freakishly brilliant. Like at Virtuous right now, my executive team is freakishly brilliant. But I think the reason that they're willing to stick it out and work with me is because I don't think I'm a big deal most days. And I think when you have a leader that doesn't think they're a big deal, it makes it easier for really smart people to come around and work with them, right? Well, and I think you've given me just in that little little bit a couple of questions to follow up on. Like you say, you say when you failed a couple of times, you kind of learn the power of others in kind of in helping you move forward. But I'm, I'm curious in your life, where would you say you've failed? And you kind of look back over the history of your youth, your college time, or even in your career, because. I don't see that, but obviously in your mind, there's been some failure. What has been some of those points where you recognized you didn't succeed in the way you thought you might? Yeah, there's probably plenty. I mean, in college, I thought I was going to graduate and sell pharmaceuticals or work for a big six accounting firm. I went to like 10 of those interviews and they all looked at me and shook their head like, you're way too sweet and passive to ever do the job. <laughs> the wrong profession. So I go, gosh. So that, but then after college, my first business was actually a record label. So I I wanted to produce bands and have a record label. 
and I produced like five albums that were all just complete garbage. Like I'm putting CDs <laughs> around a local record source, begging them to stock these things that nobody in a million years is going to buy. I mean, it was just a train wreck. I remember having a funk band recording in the living room of my house when I had a little kid and like they're playing trombones and jumping around my house. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Like, this is not a thing, but yeah, total train wreck. Right. And so again, I'm willing to go for it, but it, it doesn't always work out very well. Yeah. That's helpful. And you luckily gave up on that one, the yeah. record label. Oh yeah. Luckily it was horrible. And again, I think this, this just speaks to kind of the type of person you are. And one of the reasons I really value you as a, as a friend, you say you're not a big deal. But as I've watched kind of your leadership mature, the statistics, and I don't know the statistics, but are pretty small, of founders that are able to bridge into that CEO role of a successfully scaling company. And you now have over 140-ish employees. You've raised the Series B. Like I would say, I would count you in that class of like successful founders. What was that like for you? You know, again, you've started other companies and you've led other teams, but but that's a big change, you know, and also like the change of your board and getting the right people at the table that can help you scale and do that well. How did you get comfortable with who you were as a leader? Because you are a big deal and there's 140 families looking to you to kind of put food on the table and to keep the business moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think there was probably a transition and a lot of it came from learnings from my past companies where I'd made mistakes, but learning that your value is only going to be as good as the people around you. Right. And so for me, especially, I would say probably at 30 employees at virtuous. And then again, maybe at like 90 employees at virtuous were transition points where I had to let go of stuff. Like I'm a builder. I really like getting my hands dirty and getting in the weeds. But I think for me realizing that my value is, you know, for me at virtuous right now, it's, can I build a great executive team and pour into them and remove blockers for them to allow them to be the best version of themselves? And can I attract other really talented people to come around the table? And that as a founder, your value as you scale is no longer about how smart you are, but it's how smart and committed the other people are around the table. And so I think, that shift has probably been the biggest for me. I don't know that I'm great at it, but I think there's been a couple of important realizations that I can't, like I can't do it on my own. And were there points that you didn't want to do it? Like, are there, or were there points where you thought maybe it's time to bring in the next person? Yeah. I don't know that I've got to that point yet. It may come, but there are certainly hard moments. The hard part about relying on other people and coaching other people is that people are a mess, right? Like, and I, and I'm a mess. And so, and I'm also a little bit of a people pleaser and don't love conflict. And so those things combined just create a lot of hard days when your business is, the success of your business is dependent upon your relationship with other people. It just gets hard, right? I know you guys have experienced that as well, where like the hardest part of scaling a business is the people, it's not the business. Now, did you have that when you were growing up, like you mentioned your parents earlier, not putting any parameters around like what you could or couldn't do. Were they entrepreneurs? Were they business leaders? Did you have that modeled for you or, or was this just stuff you've truly just picked up as you've failed forward in a sense? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, my parents were pretty blue collar growing up. My dad was a general contractor and my mom worked for the school district. Right. So it wasn't 
middle-classy kind of family. So I don't know where they got it from necessarily, but for me and both my siblings have had a fair amount of success. And I think they just never told us that we weren't capable of something. And I don't know where that belief came from. They're from a little small town in Eastern New Mexico in West Texas. Like they had no business believing that we could accomplish anything we wanted to, but they just never bothered to tell us. I have five kids. And so for me, that's been a big part of even my journey as a parent is just don't put any ceiling on your kid that doesn't need to be there. They may find that ceiling on their own, but man, as a parent, I don't want to place that there. And would you say your siblings are as extreme as you are? No, very different. And so my my sister, you guys know my sister, she's pretty she's pretty locked down, like definitely not as extreme. That entrepreneurial bug, that willingness to sort of take risk and just try crazy stuff. I'm not sure why God created me that way, but it's just always been in me. Well, and you think about, well, when you say that though, you think about your sister, she ran for office. So I would say she probably does have a little bit also the craziness of going, that's the rim to rim to rim extreme kind of thing. So yeah, actually, yeah. And I don't know your brother as well as I know your sister, but I'd say both of you are fairly extreme, which is interesting. If you're part of a homeowner's association who's interested in saving money on home services, let me tell you about PIN Plus, the ultimate platform that brings neighbors together under one powerful concept, power in numbers. With PIN Plus, homeowners associations can now access group discounted pricing on essential home services, trash, pest control, pool maintenance, and so much more, all at unbeatable rates. The best part, PIN Plus is designed for you, the community members. Manage your accounts, pay bills, sign up for services, and discover exciting community-wide events, all with a simple tap of a button. Your entire community, united as one customer, allows them to negotiate fantastic deals with trusted vendors in your area. So why wait? Unleash the power in numbers today and transform your home service experience. Download the PIN Plus app from the App Store or Google Play Store, or visit www.mypinplus.com for more information. Now back to the episode. So talk to us about Virtuous a little bit. And obviously you and I've chatted a lot, but I think it's an interesting, and obviously I think right now Virtuous, you've proven that there is a market. But I think early on, there was a lot of skepticism that one, nonprofits are a good direction to kind of point your business because they're always trying to figure out how to get things cheaper. <laughs> and it's just the nature of being a nonprofit. So what is that? What has that been like for you? And first off, I guess it's a two-part question. One, what was the problem you were setting out to solve initially with Virtuous? How has that morphed over time? And how have you found kind of the nonprofit industry in a sense as a place to kind of point your point your focus? Yeah. First of all, I love the nonprofit industry. Like these folks that work at the organizations we get to serve are just amazing. I mean, working really hard to make a massive impact in the world. And it's just, it feels like such a blessing to get to do that as my day job every day. I think the problem we're trying to solve is, is even before Virtuous, I kind of developed a passion for generosity in general, right? And I think that passion stemmed from a couple of things. One is that when people give their time, talent, social capital, money away, they're able to create massive impact in the world. Like we're seeing organizations that we work with because they're getting donor dollars, they're able to do crazy, amazing things in the world. And I also saw that generosity shifted something in the heart of the giver 
So when we give of ourselves, we become less focused on ourselves and more focused on our neighbor, like less bent in on ourselves. And I just, I thought that sort of those two amazing bottom lines could be life-changing and world-changing, right? So that's kind of what drove me to get into it. I think when you start looking at nonprofits, you realize that the way they've traditionally fundraised is pretty impersonal. So giving is one of the most personal things you'll ever do, but the way nonprofits go about fundraising is spray and pray direct mail, right? So if you guys have ever given to a nonprofit, what you likely get is a piece of direct mail like 90 days after your gift that feels like institutional garbage and you throw it away. And that disconnect between giving is really powerful and personal and nonprofits are really impersonal in the way they fundraise it was just a massive wet blanket on generosity and massively frustrating. Like there's so much pent up generosity. People just aren't giving because nonprofits aren't able to create a more personal connection to their causes. So that drove me nuts and it animated me to create virtuous. So we founded virtuous with this idea that, man, what if we could provide nonprofits with the technology and tactics to actually build personal relationships with donors? And what if those personal relationships drove increased giving, like people gave more often, they gave more sacrificially, they just didn't give money, but they gave their time and their social capital. What would the world look like if nonprofits were able to orchestrate that? So everything we've built at Virtuous is around that idea. So we kind of have a this big vision now, we want to create $10 billion in net new generosity in the world. And everything we do is around that kind of big vision. I wholeheartedly watched you and I, I know you're incredibly generous, but what would you like for our listeners and stuff going, I find the more I have, the harder it is to be generous. What's your thoughts on that? Like, cause it is interesting as I'm having conversations with people now and as people obtain success, cause it was easy for me to give when I didn't have much money, but as you have more money. So what, what would you say to that? How do you discuss that with people? Yeah. I mean, I think that's just true in human nature, I think we saw during COVID, people actually gave a lot more generally and part of it because they were hurting and they saw people around them hurting. And when you see people hurting, your empathy meter goes up. I think as a percentage of GDP, giving was highest in the Great Depression in this country, which doesn't make any sense, right? But what you said is generally true, Brian, is when you're doing really good, you actually start thinking of yourself a little bit more and thinking of your neighbors a little bit less. It's just kind of how we're wired. Though I do think the other important thing to what you said is giving is way more than money, right? And that's what I try to get people's mind wrapped around is like living generously is more than just writing a check to a nonprofit. It's how you think about how you give back in relationships with people close to you, how you give back to your family, how you orient your calendar around things that aren't completely selfish, but ways to build others up. And yeah, sometimes that looks like a tax deductible write-off for the gift to charity, but a lot of times it doesn't. That's good. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Because I think oftentimes when people think about giving, it's really just maximizing that tax benefit. But if we actually reframed our thinking around it, even our calendars, where you go and grab a coffee, who you say hi to, making space and time for those things, like that actually leads to, I think, increased generosity. Because I compartmentalize generosity in the sense of going, like I do think, okay, how much do I need to give this year? Where do we need to target that to? But I'm really stingy, I mean, with my time too, where I go, I don't know, I have less time. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a good, giving is way more than money. 
So I think that's a, a good that's thing. A lot on this podcast before too, which is you shouldn't have two pockets, right? You shouldn't have like your giving pocket and then your business or personal pocket. It should all be the same pocket. Even how we run virtuous generosity is baked into our core values, not because we're just convincing people to give more of their money to charities, but because we want to be generous to our team members and deliver joy to our team members. We want to be generous to our industry. We want to create a business that creates human flourishing. And so much of that human flourishing doesn't revolve around charitable giving. It revolves around creating jobs, creating joy, like redefining industries, rolling back some of the problems that have historically systemically existed and reorienting people to new systems that love to create love for neighbor. Right. So, but that's way more than just like giving to charity. But if you can orient everybody around that bigger picture, you get way more creative about how you create good in the world. Yeah. Have you been tracking or are you able to kind of pinpoint, especially now that you've been working on Virtuous for the last several years, what would be some of the trends that you're seeing in the nonprofit sector? You mentioned some of the conversations we've had on this podcast in the past. Like, Are you hearing nonprofits or nonprofit leaders or board members talking differently about both giving and then even managing their own companies in a way that do good in the world? Are you, are you hearing any, any shifts there? Yeah, there are. There's a couple of big macro shifts. And some of these shifts got reset a little bit in COVID, but they're still generally true is that there's been kind of a decline of what we might call the everyday giver. And so year over year for the last 15, 20 years, except for during COVID, you saw less and less everyday people giving $100. Right. So call it like the middle class base giver. Those people are shrinking over time, which is super concerning because it's a pointer toward either a shrinking middle class in this country or people are just less generous or thinking about generosity less to nonprofits than they used to. At the macro level, giving's actually stayed pretty consistent year over year as a percentage of GDP, but that's partially because like the McKinsey Scots of the world are stepping up and writing like massive checks. So you see major donors and foundations sucking up more giving and then everyday donors shrinking, which for me is incredibly concerning because generosity is more than just a check. It's actually what I said, it's shifting the heart of the giver, right? So I think when you see less giving among everyday givers, you see people who are robbed of the joy of being able to participate in the work of these charities. So that's one of the things we're really focused on. And there's a secondary trend that's played out in some ways is this corporate shift to, hey, we should actually care about the world here, right? So you see brands like Patagonia, which, you know, in some ways maybe look more like a nonprofit than a for-profit because they focused so much on global positive impact and that's wound around their brand. And so you see the shift of like doing good and social impact being transferred in some ways to corporations. Now, I think it, it's still to be determined whether how much of that is actual good that's being created versus like maybe a virtue signaling, because especially younger consumers like to be associated with brands who they perceive as doing good in the world. And so is that brand posturing or is that real good that's being created? But I certainly think for companies like Patagonia, it's like real sacrificial generosity, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, so again, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I went on a fishing trip and Chenard, the founder of Patagonia was there 
And what was interesting is, so we're in Argentina and he's there and I'm looking at his clothing and I have pictures of his clothing where, I mean, his clothing was just beat up. I mean, he had patches and I mean, it was like the real deal. And then what was interesting is he had a family member with him who looked like they were popping tags right off clothes. But I thought he was there in Argentina visiting these properties because he was trying to set aside vast amounts of land. And it was real. Like I was, I was very impressed with him and he was very kind. Yeah. Which is amazing, right? I mean, that's exactly what you want to see. It's just like that lifestyle generosity mindset where it doesn't matter how big of a deal you are. You're really focused on like an impact of good. Well, and he even had a company that he shut down that was very profitable, but it was metal clamps and he, it was bad for the environment. And he much to his partner, you know, his dismay, he shut it down. He didn't pivot or anything. So, but well, I'm, I'm like thinking of the middle class and, and less giving. It is concerning when you think about, again, with your statement is giving is more than money, where it is interesting to see, because like you said, so larger corporations are stepping in. And I do think people see that and then they think, what is my $100 going to do versus these companies should be giving, giving that money. But it's a good reminder that we need to be teaching generosity is a good thing. I think one of the differences though, too, and I think this will be the thing that's hard to tell long-term, but Patagonia, the founder, it was his why in starting Patagonia wasn't so much to go out and make money. Your why in starting Virtuous is not so much to go out and make a crap ton of money for yourself. Like you genuinely cared about solving that problem and helping people become more generous. So your, your mindset's different than a CEO, corporate CEO that's hired in. And now all of a sudden that's the disconnect, right? Coca-Cola has a responsibility to do good in the world because they are a corporate citizen. But the connection of what they are as a company is very different than the founder that actually started that company with real intention of doing good in the world and doing right by the people. And that's not to call out corporate America in a sense that they don't feel those same things, but they don't have that same original design and desire, I think, that the founder has. 100%. And I think it's, you can add that. I think what ends up happening a lot of times, though, somebody will read Simon Sinek or whoever, great stuff, and they'll spend a day in a conference room manufacturing their why and do like this light gloss on top of the organization to explain the good that they're creating in the world. But functionally, culturally, it hasn't made its way down in the organization. I think if you don't have that strong why of a strong founder, there has to be so much discipline around organizational culture shift from individual contributors on up so that everybody knows that why is important. So the way, even at companies down to like how you do performance reviews, how you bonus people, what you celebrate at all team meetings has to all orient around that bigger purpose, not just around quarterly earnings. And that's twice as hard when you don't have that Patagonia founder that's pushing it from the very beginning, right? And it's, I think it's a, a huge problem for in the corporate world right now because maybe you have less people that sort of come from this compassionate capitalism kind of worldview where they're everything's connected and maybe came up in a 1980s Glengarry Glen Ross greed is good kind of way of thinking about the world but I do think the shift is possible but it's just really hard cultural work hmm. yeah now, you mentioned in your current kind of role have shifted, you know, you love building and really embracing this, this kind of new, and I say new because it's probably not new for you. It's probably a couple of years in, but role of leading and building your team versus the product itself. Like, 
How have you shifted? And, you know, for listeners, because a lot of entrepreneurs, they really struggle to bridge into the kind of the role you've embraced. What would you say to a young entrepreneur that now they've got 10, 15 people and they really kind of are really hitting that wall of scaling their company and their enterprise and allowing and releasing some of the responsibility you mentioned about like letting go of certain things in order to scale. What would you say to that young entrepreneur to kind of give them some wisdom or even some things to look forward to? Because I think there's going to be a death of some things like being in the trenches, building, rolling up your sleeves, coding things that has to kind of go away when you start leading a company of 150 employees. I think, I mean, in the early days, even at 10 employees, you can still almost be a glorified individual contributor where you got your hands in everything and you're doing a lot of the work. But I think even by 30 employees plus, for me, I always thought 30% of my time should be attracting and retaining great talent, right? And so that's going out and finding people smarter than me to join us in our mission and then making sure the people I had, I was mentoring, giving opportunities to and equipping them to use our superpowers, right? And then 30% of the time, I was setting a clear vision for the company. So I was crafting a vision and creating a lot of clarity and communicating. I think one of the things that gets missed as you begin to scale is communication's hard. And so if I want somebody, especially a company my size, I'll have to communicate something 10, 12 times in different ways to even get a little bit of a change. And so just recasting that vision every day in different ways needs to be at least 30% of my job. Now, if the other 30% of your job needs to be fighting fires, working on the stuff you want to work on, that's fine. But even if I look at my calendar through the week, it should reflect those priorities. Like is 30% of my time spent attracting and retaining great talent and pouring into my key leaders is 30% communicating and casting a clear vision. And if I can't make sense of that on my calendar, then I'm probably building something that's not going to scale beyond me. The one thing I was really curious of, because in our current world, we're such a polarized society. You've already articulated your own personal faith and its impact on you. How have you been able to build a company and that really, in a, in a sense, and this could be from the outside looking in, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been able to attract top tier talent that have different values than you personally. How have you been able to do that? Because I think that's also this other thing where I can't work with them because they think of something differently, but you've been able to actually do that. And how have you done that in such a values-oriented business? Yeah, it's, it's not trivial and it hasn't always gone really well. I'm incredibly grateful for what we've built, but I think we have a, an amazingly diverse team right now. We have all faiths, points of view, worldviews represented on our team. And I love it. And it's the same with our customer base. It's almost funny, like I'll have weeks where I'll get, we have customers right now that are really hard right-leaning or really hard left-leaning, for example. And I'll get customers that are far right-leaning that'll say, you guys are left woke crazy. And then I'll get people on the left like, you guys are right-wing Trumpers. And I'm like, I, I don't know where you're getting that from because we don't, <laughs> we're not picking teams, right? Which is a weird stance. Culturally, we say we lean in and love people different than us as a team. So I have people with completely different worldviews of the customers we're serving, serving those customers, which I absolutely love. But that's one of those ones from a communicating regularly. Like I have to re-communicate that all the time to our team 
and to our customers in the market at large. Like this is what we're passionate about. We care about it. We're not wavering from this. It may means making really hard decisions some days, but it's something that even when I do new employee onboarding, we spend like 15 minutes just on this topic with every new employee. Like this is what we care about, but it has to be reinforced or you drift away from that, right? You get pulled in one direction or another and you sort of lose your soul in the process. Well, we don't want you to do that. Don't lose your soul, Gabe. Well, I feel like it's only appropriate because I'm going to wrap things up here. But I do also want to point out, you have an incredible spouse who has been super, again, I, I just think she's one of your superpowers. She's amazing. I always tell people, what I always find in a good spouse is someone who loves you dearly, but isn't impressed with you. And I would say that is such a great summary of your wife and how she Dude, she is, I mean, she's been a rock star throughout all this because you had crazy extreme ending this one way more different than others. But I just want to say, I love you and you are awesome. I think in the sense of going, because I mean, Bryson, I've known you a long time and you are who you are. And so I'm very grateful for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of More Than Profit. Make sure to check out Gabe's book, Responsive Fundraising, linked in the show notes and visit virtuous.org to learn more. To stay up to date with More Than Profit, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a review so others can find us as well. Don't forget to check out our new website at morethanprofit.fm where we have additional content and past episodes. You can also learn more about what's ahead by following us on Twitter at listen underscore MTP. More Than Profit is a production of Access Ventures and is hosted by Bryce Butler and Brian McKay. Our executive producer is Crystal Escobar and our associate producer is Bryn McKay. Audio production assistance is provided by Resonate Recording. Our theme song today was No Man's Land by Slapstorm. I'm Brim McKay, and you've been listening to More Than Profit.